What do you think Q is, by the way? It's an entity of 10 or less people okay, that have um, uh, Bob the high, high um, clearance, you know, security clearance. And how do you know that? Well, I'm just telling you, this is what it appears to be. What it appears to be. So you don't have any yeah. proof of that. That's what you're guessing it is. And you don't have any proof there is it. We all, over the weeks uh, of November, started to receive phone calls, things on social media, uh, complete fantastical assertions about all of our businesses that attempted to connect all of our businesses, again, totally preposterous ways. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Hello, welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Yasha Monk. I've been thinking a lot lately about the role of Twitter in our political discourse. Now, there's all kinds of things which I think are pernicious about it. It habituates us to interpret each other in the least charitable light. It makes us addicted to quick rounds of denunciation that rack up retweets and likes that poison our political discourse. It allows some extremists and conspiracy theorists the space to radicalize and perhaps even to connect in a way that allows terrorist networks to form. But I think the biggest danger of Twitter is one where we can actually do something about much more easily. It's that Twitter is inhabited by some of the most extreme ideological people. And yet a lot of decision makers, a lot of influential people in our country and around the world mistake it for reality. They think that an argument that travels well on Twitter is one that most of the voters, most of the stakeholders agree with. They think that if something gets heavily criticized on Twitter, it must mean that a huge percentage of a population finds it bad or offensive. And there's simply no evidence for that. Every study shows that only a minority of people use Twitter, that only a minority of the people who do use Twitter post regularly about politics. And it shows that those who do post about politics, in the word of one study, tend to be ideological extremists. So I don't know how to ensure that terrorist networks can't form through social media. I don't know how to ensure that when you log onto Twitter, you won't have a terrible time. But I do know how all of us collectively can make sure that Twitter has less of an influence on our country. And that is for us to learn to ignore Twitter, to pay less attention to it, to perhaps delete it from your phone, to not overestimate the representativeness of Twitter when you are making decisions in your place of work. It doesn't take huge regulation. It doesn't take some systematic change in order to accomplish that. It is something that each of us can do on our own. My guests today are Russ Muirhat and Nancy Rosenblum. They are both political theorists, as am I, so I've known them well for years. In fact, Nancy was one of my thesis advisors, so she has taught me a lot of what I know about politics. I had them on the show today because they wrote an excellent new book called A Lot of People Are Saying. Imagine that in the voice of Donald Trump or of John Domenico. A lot of people are saying the new conspiracism and the assault on democracy. Nancy and Russ, thank you so much for coming on the Trumpcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to be here. So the book is called A Lot of People Are Saying, and it's obviously about the huge role that conspiracy theories now play in our politics. What's different about that? What, what is a conspiracy theory, and haven't they always been around, Nancy? There have always been conspiracy theories, and our thesis is 
that what we have now is conspiracy without the theory. The conspiracy and theory have been decoupled, and that we ha- what we have instead of the theory, which is an attempted explanation using evidence and argument, sometimes warranted and sometimes not, that what we have instead is, is again, conspiracy without the theory, bare assertion. The election is rigged. When we started working on this, there was a very curious idea of theory or, I don't know, concoction coming out of Texas. It came to be known as Jade Helm after some military exercises that were scheduled for the area for the Southwest. And people began to think that the United States Army was planning to take over the state of Texas and declare martial law, disarm the population. And this theory was sort of current, just as Nancy and I started working on the subject. And this is an example. I I mean, it's not even a theory. It's just a make-believe world. There's nothing that it makes sense of. There's nothing that it explains. Let me back up for a second, because I have to admit that I've never thought of the two elements of conspiracy theory as being separate, right? We said conspiracy theory, that's like one thing out there in the world. So if you go back 30 or 40 years ago, and you look at conspiracy theories that were around then, that actually Stanley Kubrick produced the moon landing and it's all fake, or that we knew about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor before it happened. How was that a theory in the way that Jade Helm is not? They were attempting to explain a real event. That is that something happened, 9-11 or the assassination of Kennedy. Let's take important political ones, not bizarre, you know, fabulous ones. And they attempted to explain these things, rejecting official explanations and looking for evidence that official explanations had overlooked and putting these dots together and seeing patterns and out of the patterns, constructing a narrative. And the power of these conspiracy theories, insofar as they were warranted and had any power, was that they were reasoning in a way that we could understand. This is how we reason about things, Mm. right? Whereas what we have today with conspiracy without the theory is no attempted explanation. It's pushed to the side. What we have instead are bare assertions, Mm -hmm. like rigged, or innuendo, or I'm just asking questions, right, so that you can... A lot of people are saying. And the mantra that Trump uses all the time from the very beginning, you know, asked whether it's true that George Soros is funding... The people coming across the southern border, he says, I wouldn't be surprised a lot of people are saying that. Let me counter that for one second. I was traveling across the center of Europe over my ill-advised spring break. I should have just gone to the beach in Cancun. But along the sort of old line of the Iron Curtain that Winston Churchill talked about, from Szczecin, the Baltic, to Trieste and the Adriatic, Poland and Hungary and Austria to Italy. When I get to Trieste, I met up with the vice mayor of the city, who is a member of the far-right Northern League, and he told me a conspiracy theory. I think it was a theory, but perhaps it wasn't. I'd love to have you referee this, right? So he said, everywhere I went, I heard a lot about Charles. Everywhere I went, I heard a lot about vaccines being fake and so on. And everywhere I went, I heard a lot about people paying money for immigrants to cross the border. Well, he had a unified theory of all of this. So what's actually <laughs> going on? is that George Soros secretly owns a bunch of pharmaceutical company. So he's trying to push migrants into Europe because migrants supposedly bring disease and fear of disease. And this will make it easier for the government to force people to buy vaccines, which are harmful and ineffective, but will give profit to Soros's companies. That seems like a theory to me. Is that a theory? It is. That's a conspiracy theory. He has a notion of intent. He has a notion of the capacity to fulfill this intent. He's going to give evidence of it. 
So, yes. Is there evidence in that theory? Part of what Nancy was saying earlier, Russ, is that it is actually trying to explain real events. Is that one of the yeah. differences? Yeah. And the anti-vaxxers produce all kinds of quasi-scientific evidence, not just anecdote. Yeah. When Hofstadter talked about conspiracy theory, he said they mimic scientists or they mimic researchers, right? They have footnotes, they have explanations, they have evidence, they have publications, as they do. They have all of the apparatus of sort of doing academic research, except that Sometimes it's completely bizarre and unwarranted. Sometimes it's true. Russ, when are conspiracy theories true? Or how should we think about conspiracy theories? We tend to think of them as a danger, as something that's deeply corrosive of our political system. That's certainly what you do in the book. But then you also make this important claim that actually in certain circumstances they are right. So how can we acknowledge the fact that at certain points there have been conspiracies and so we have to be open to the possibility that it could again be conspiracies while still defending ourselves against the potential corrosive impact of these conspiracy theories. I think Nancy and I don't necessarily think that conspiracy theories, the kind of old or classic conspiracy theories that try to make sense of the world, are essentially corrosive. They might be wrong. They definitely require us to be skeptical. We should look into them in a skeptical way. But also, I think, in an open-minded way. People in Flint thought that the government was poisoning the water and lying about it, conspiring to deceive them. And they were right. It sounds unbelievable, perhaps, at first sight, but it turned out to be true. So I think sometimes conspiracy theories can bring power to account and can make power legible and can empower the people to take control of their collective life. I wouldn't say that all conspiracy theories are corrosive. You know, they're really born of an effort to make sense of the world. Classic conspiracy theory tries to make the world understandable. Sometimes it distorts the world in an effort to make it understandable. You know, it seems that it just seems unbelievable that, say, 19 people scheming in the sands of Afghanistan could successfully, you know, attack the Pentagon or, or destroy the World Trade Center. It seems like that just doesn't make sense. There must be a cause that's just as big as the world historical effect. And so the conspiracy theorists imagines that, you know, the U.S. government was in on the planet. And then it starts to make sense. And they, 9-11 truthers, architects and engineers for 9-11, they have a lot of theory, a lot of evidence. They try to defend this hypothesis. And I'm not convinced by it, but I think, it, you know, something you have to at least consider. What we really see arising is not that kind of, you know, conspiracy theory that tries to make the power legible, and controllable, but a kind of, as Nancy said, you know, fabulation or concoction or sheer assertion that doesn't make reality more understandable, that actually kind of makes it more mysterious and strange and bewildering. I'm a little puzzled by this claim because I can see that there's something more sophisticated and something in some ways more intellectually pleasing about a full-blown conspiracy theory where you are putting forward your own counter-explanation and you at least make a big show of being receptive to evidence. But isn't it also potentially much more dangerous? I mean, if you actually put forward a theory of how 10 individuals in the world are secretly steering everything that's happening and if only we could get rid of them and take their place, everything would be better. It might be action-orienting in a very different way. It might make people say, well, we should go out and kill them. Whereas if you're just saying, well, I don't know, you know, perhaps this crazy thing is happening and perhaps that crazy thing is happening and who knows, it may not give you an alternative paradigm for how to act in the world. And so it may actually be less dangerous as a result. It may allow lots of people to sit in front of their laptops or phones or in front of a television and sort of shout at the TV, but it may be less likely to make them actually act in ways which aren't conducive to their interests or anybody else. 
businesses. This is a very important point you're making, Yasha, and I agree. Now, conspiracy theories and conspiracy without the theory are both potentially very destructive, but I think they're destructive in different ways. Mm -hmm. I think you're quite right that a conspiracy theory can mobilize people. It can be used by government as propaganda to mobilize people and to incite all kinds of destructive and violent action. It always has, and it still is today. Like the American Revolution. (laughs) Right, like the American Revolution, the Declaration of Independence. But conspiracy without the theory that's coming today from the top of government, from the White House and from Republicans in Congress who acquiesce or are silent or sometimes endorse these things by people in power, not people out of power, who are making these claims without evidence. They're not necessarily inciting action, although that does happen. What they're doing is another very kind of destructive thing, and that is delegitimating the institutions that are knowledge-producing to try to bring up the evidence to say that they're wrong and delegitimating also political opposition in very dramatic ways. And this kind of delegitimation, which is more than just mistrust, it's denying the meaning, value, and authority of these institutions. And that kind of corrosion is different from the mobilization that a conspiracy theory might. It's no less destructive, but I think it's destructive in a different way. One of the things that I was struck by in the book was your description of some of the cognitive biases that make conspiracy theories attractive to people. It is a bias towards trying to impute intentionality where it doesn't necessarily exist, that when huge events in the world happen, it must be that somebody wanted them to happen. And it's a bias towards proportionality, as you mentioned a moment ago, that it's hard to imagine that 20 people in Afghanistan could produce as momentous an event as 9-11. And that had me wondering whether there isn't something deeply gratifying and calming about conspiracy theories. We tend to think of them as scary. Oh, there's these sinister people out there in the world and they want to do these bad things to us. And that is an element of conspiracy theory. But it seems to me far scarier to think that there's nobody who's in charge, that there aren't 20 people in the world who can come together and actually decide what's going to happen. That's a far scarier thought. And so perhaps conspiracy theory is a kind of adaptation to that, which allows us to say, well, no, the world is under control. The wrong people are controlling it at the moment. But if only we can replace it, everything would be great. Yeah, yeah, I think those are really astute observations, Yasha. And yeah, classic conspiracy theories may make the world more understandable than it actually is and uh, more ordered than it actually ever could be. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to inhabit a world filled with accident that, you know, sometimes just with absurdity, with events that really can't be easily made sense of. And so I do think there's sometimes classic conspiracy theory orders the world and in the process distorts it, makes it more ordered than it actually is. That's right. It's imposing a fake order on the world, which may lead to really bad political consequences if people act on it. But it is in the short run a way of reconciling people to the world. Douglas Hofstadter made your point in his great essay on this, which is that, in a way, conspiracy theory is a reaction to social science, right, and to the notion of unintended consequences and so on and so forth. But I think that your idea that it's comforting may be correct in some sort of cognitive sense. On the other hand, an awful lot of conspiracy theories are apocalyptic, right? They're dramatic. They see all of history as a kind of clash. Uh, They're mobilizing. That's not comforting in the way that we think of it. Whereas I think that the conspiracy without the theory that we see today, these bare assertions and just asking questions and so on, have very definite and immediate gratifications that explain their spread today. 
So well, what are the immediate right? So if you say, if you make a bare assertion, if you say the election is rigged or Hillary Clinton is running a child sex trafficking ring out of Comet Pizza, it is lashing out. It is an act of aggression. It is performative aggression that's very gratifying. And the more disorienting it is, and the more it enrages the opposition, the better. So one thing is there's this instant gratification of a kind of aggression. The other is if you say, I'm just asking questions, you can disown it if you have to, hmm. right? You can back off from it. So I think that there are, for the people wielding these things, very real gratifications that the laboriousness of conspiracy theory doesn't provide. So what's right about the claim of rigged elections may in part be that it explains away a scary fact, right? A candidate you don't like has won the election. That seems to indicate something about the country that you don't want to believe, that all of these people are capable of voting for somebody who you believe to be evil. And so the fact that the election was rigged means that, no, actually, uh, things are right with your country. Ordinary people are on your side. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so odd that that particular conspiratorial charge didn't come from the losers in right. the election, but from the winner. Right. And it used to be thought that, you know, conspiratorial thinking was a kind of habit of, of the out group of the losers. That's how they make sense of the powerful group that they can't control or don't identify with. And what we're seeing now is uh, that conspiratorial thinking is the habit of the winners, in at least American politics. And, the, you know, conspiracist has really moved into the White House. So he's the one, though he won the election, and no one disputes it, who thinks the election was rigged. And, and I think what we're seeing is that this sort of what Nancy and I call the new conspiracism or, or conspiracy without the theory is also satisfying because it kind of remakes reality to fit with one's political identity. So if you think that Donald Trump was on balance, the preferable candidate, well, you don't have to live in a world where he lost the popular vote because the rigged election explains that away. Or if you think Hillary Clinton is on balance, kind of less preferable candidate, you don't have to live with any ambiguity about that. She's actually really evil. She tortures children. And so I think it, it distorts reality so that we never encounter a bad fact, a fact that interrupts our convictions. So one difference between the past and today in your account is that we used to have conspiracy theory. Now we just have conspiracy. We have both. Yeah, yeah. Conspiracy theory hasn't disappeared. It's out there. Like the vice mayor of Trieste I was talking about. But, <laughs> exactly. but, so there's an appearance exactly. of a conspiracy without a theory, but didn't exist in that way before. Is that a better way of putting it? I think they coexist. Both kinds of conspiracism coexist. Yeah. Right. Another difference is simply that now we have a conspiracy theorist or conspiracist that perhaps he also does both in the White House. So what impact does it have when these conspiracy theories migrate from the edges of our political system to the bully pulpit? It makes every difference. It is an assault on democracy that's really very serious and maybe very hard to counter because you have a president who has a compromised sense of reality and who is a compulsive conspiracist and who does three things. He hijacks institutions to try to prove, in a sense, his, his conspiracy is true. He derails institutions. He claims that there's a, a threat at the, of invasion at the border and takes the military from its business and sends the military there. And then he creates institutions like the uh, Election Integrity Commission or this new one to try to counter the evidence of climate change. So when it is a president <laughs> with authority who uses this, and I think not just as a tactic, I think that he has a compromised sense of reality for reasons that psychiatrists and others can explain. He has the capacity to derail institutions, to discredit them, and to um, delegitimate. Yeah, that's so, so right, Nancy. And I mean, one of the things that Nancy and I 
came to believe about the new conspiracism is that it divides us in a more profound way than, than say, just ideological disagreement or even, you know, radical political polarization does. It creates a kind of polarization about what it means to know something. And across that divide, it's very hard to have any kind of even disagreement or argument or discussion. It's hard to feel like we belong to the same political community when, when we deeply disagree about what it means to know something. And, you know, the, the presidency is the only office that, that every citizen votes for. It's a great unifying office of enormous symbolic and rhetorical power. And it, you know, might be said that every president from Washington to Obama used that office with a view to making the country more of a country, to bringing it together, to unifying, often just through ritual like the State of the Union. And I think what we have is a real break with that, someone who's dividing not just ideologically, not just at the level of policy, but at, the, at this deeper level, a level of what it means to know something. Following up on that, here's another way of understanding the difference. A conspiracy theory aims to make you believe that it's true. The new conspiracism that we describe gives us the standard, it's true enough, hmm. so that the people don't necessarily believe that uh, three million voters, illegal voters, were bused to the polls, right, to, to um, give Hillary Clinton the popular vote. They believe that it's true enough. And let me read you two quotes mm -hmm. just to tell you what uh, true enough sounds like. So Representative Brian Zollinger, he's a Republican congressman, gives this allegation that the Democratic Party conspired to create a clash between white nationalists and uh, liberals in Charlottesville in 2017. And he was challenged. And he said, I'm not saying it's true, but I'm saying it's completely plausible. Hmm. Here's another example. This is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Trump's uh, press secretary. Apparently, Trump tweeted out a video that falsely purported to show a Muslim migrant assaulting someone. And it turned out to be a false video. And she was asked about it. And she says, whether it's a real video, the threat is real. Hmm. Right? So what, what we're saying is that it's true enough yeah. for the people who are accepting that these things that are coming not only from Trump, but also from other Republicans. To what extent is this a right-wing phenomenon and to what extent do you see it on both sides? I mean, the last quote you read, I have to say, reminded me of a Jussie Smollett case where the dominant reaction on the left was to say, well, maybe that Jussie Smollett made this particular attack up. But after all, there are lots of attacks on people of color in this country, as there really are. I mean, is that a comparable response? Yeah, I think so far we really see this kind of new conspiracism coming from the, the radical right. Um, I think in the end it will it will not assist conservatism. It may destroy conservatism, but that's where it's coming from right now. I think it's a very powerful, as Nancy says, very satisfying thing. We could see it spread to the left, although I think the left still wants to use government to improve the you know, human condition, to, to improve the country, to reform things. And as such, they, they want to have a grasp on facts that can help them do that. So they're, they're not, I think, as disdainful of the world of evidence and facts right now. We see a partisan connection today, and it's not a very hard thing to understand why it should be coming from the right. That is to say, long before Trump, the Republicans were interested in limiting government, especially regulatory agents. He said the state, you remember Rick Perry in his primary said he wants to do away with three agencies, but he could only name two because the specifics didn't matter. What matters is this attack on government. And conspiracism uh, uh, is allied in that sense. It is an asset to those people who want to limit government. So they are willing to go along with really very destructive kinds of claims like the ones that come out of Trump, who says the National Intelligence Agency should go back to school or 
the FBI is pr- promoting hoax, that the Justice Department is planning a coup. They were willing to go along with this, not only because he's popular and because of the re-election elements, which everybody focuses on, but because there is, for the moment, a contingent alliance between these things. So people on the right would say that parts of the left have become captive to a kind of conspiratorial thinking about Donald Trump over the last few years. That the idea that he was a paid-up Russian agent, uh, which did have real currency on parts of the left, was a a form of conspiracy theory, or perhaps just conspiracism. I'm still not sure that I quite grasp the distinction. Is that something you're concerned about, or do you think that doesn't really fall under the same heading? Well, you're quite right. There was an op-ed in the New York Times saying that Democrats today are engaged in a collusion hoax. Right, that the Mueller report proves that it was a hoax, that they have become collusion truthers, and that this is the biggest conspiracy theory in American history. And so the question is, what's the difference? (laughs) You know, we say that the Republicans and Trump are engaged in a conspiracy, and they say that we're conspiracy theorists. And, you know, the answer has to be that there are two things. One is the, the power of common sense in some ways, but the other is looking at evidence and having an open mind and doing what you do when you reason about anything in policy or politics or in life altogether. Russ, tell me more about how all of this constitutes an assault on democracy and particularly how we can actually start to respond to that. If that's an assault on democracy, if all of these a lot of people are saying is actually add up to something really dangerous, how should we respond? Yeah, I think one of the really frightful things about it is the way that the new conspiracism in particular makes the opposition look like a conspiracy itself that's trying to undermine the regime. And when that happens, you know, we lose the ability to see the other side as a legitimate player in democratic life. And that's the way in which when you see all liberals or all Democrats or the leader of the opposition like Hillary Clinton as engaged in profoundly evil conspiracies. When people come to see the other side that way, I don't know that they can abide by the results of an election peacefully, especially when they lose. So we really worry about, you know, a profound assault on just elemental democratic institutions. And Nancy, I mean, does that seem right? <laughs> Let me underscore it. I think that yeah. it may be the most important point we have to make about all of this, which is that representative democracy depends on a kind of regulated party rivalry. And it's based on the notion that the opposition is a legitimate opposition. And once you do what Trump and others have done to obliterate that conviction by saying that Obama was an illegitimate president or that the Democrats are treasonous. It began, he began by calling the Democrats treasonous because they didn't applaud his State of the Union speech. That <laughs> well-known sign of treason <laughs> right, failing right. to applaud <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> exactly, but now it's gotten much more severe, his claims of treason. And finally, I, we, we believe that in the end, this is an obliteration of the legitimacy of parties for political representation altogether. And it harkens back to the day, which was not so long ago, when political parties were considered conspiracies. I mean, this was the common view throughout history. The parties were factions that, um, uh, that divided what ought to be a healthy political whole. And we're seeing that too, again, but we're seeing it in a very malignant form. And I think that even after Trump, we're not going to go back readily or easily to accepting political opposition as legitimate and as one of the sort of institutional and normative bases of a democracy. That's really scary. So what, what can we do about that? I mean, should we just reconcile ourselves to the fact that we live in the theory of conspiracy and conspiracy theory and that it'll succeed in making any opposition to your side in politics look illegitimate 
forevermore or are there ways in which we can build these institutions back up? The very, very first step, and the reason we wrote the book is because we're really, we want to deny to the new conspiracism the distincture of legitimacy that comes with the concept of a theory. We just want to mark it out for what it is and say, look, this is not conspiracy theory. This is not a more or less well-intentioned effort to understand the world and to bring power to account. This is a political thing. It's motivated in many cases by politics. It distorts the world, it remakes reality, and it really assaults democracy. So we just want to call it what it is. That's the first step in, in combating it. And beyond that, we really want to inspire people to stand by both their skeptical dispositions and their common sense, so that when confronted with with these notions, with these concoctions, they don't give in to the rhetoric of true enough, and they maintain a concern for what's really true. We think that the broad public might respond this way, and we're hoping to help prod and inspire people to do so. Nancy, give us some hope at the end of this wonderful conversation. You want some hope? I think that not only in the United States, but other places too, the decline of parties and party systems is a frightening phenomenon. And it's not clear how they're resurrected. I think that they are not going to be resurrected quickly. <laughs> I think the idea that democracy gets represented outside of parties through other means, most of them perilous. So I can't be too hopeful in the short run. <laughs> But I think in the long run, if we're going to continue to have something like political representation, we're going to have the resurrection of the notion of regulated party rivalry and a loyal opposition. And people are going to stop saying that we view the opposition not only as We don't want our daughter to marry someone of the other party. People are now saying we see the other party as dangerous. And it's only when we get past this notion that we can have a reinstitutionalization of democracy. Nancy and Russ, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Yasha. This was fun. That's our show for today. Say hello to us on Twitter and let us know what you think. I'm at Yasha Monk, Y-A-S-C-H underscore M-O-U-N-K. And you can find the show at Real Trumpcast. Before you go, I have one more request. Sign up for Slate Plus. Today is the day. It's only $35 for the first year. It gets you the full roster of Slate podcasts and supports our work. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan. I'm Yasha Monk. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.